The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. Joining us for episode two of the Boys of Tech, a weekly commentary and sometimes just general chit-chat of the latest news in the technology sector. The Boys of Tech are Brett King. Hello. Howdy. How are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. And uh, I'm Edwin Herman. Now, I, you know what, Brett? I actually had to double check whether it really was you because you mentioned to me earlier that you were making dinner and in all the years I've known you, I can't think back to a single time when you've actually made dinner. What's going on? Um, oh, I didn't feel like curry tonight, and that's what everybody else was ordering. So, <laughs> so you went to the trouble of making something. Well, you know, opening a can of baked beans and putting it in a saucepan is not what I would consider gourmet cooking, but it's what I was up to tonight. <laughs> okay, maybe it doesn't really count then. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's more heating, really. So, well, look, I, I'll tell you what. We've actually swapped roles because I had takeaways tonight. I had fish and chips. <laughs> and that's a bit of a rarity for me these days. So we swapped we swapped uh, eating habits for now for today. <laughs> Alrighty, hey, Adobe is opening up the RTMP protocol now. The story the story goes that um, they plan to open up RTMP, which is the protocol used to deliver s- the streaming media in Flash. Now, this is kind of uh, sort of a going along the track of what they you know what they were doing uh, previously like in 2006 they contributed the uh, the core of uh, some of the technology to the Mozilla project uh, following year 2007 they uh, opened its action message format and now here they are saying okay we're going to open up RTMP why would they bother well they've been asked um, to do this for such a long time uh, it just took a while for them to get around to it that and with the um, competition uh, coming in from Microsoft's Silverlight, it's um, yeah, it was on the horizon that they would be stepping up to the plate with opening something up. Yeah, I did actually. Is Silverlight an open thing, or is that a closed format? Do you know? It's based on an open XML um, format, but I'm not sure about the rest of it. Yeah, because I, I did wonder how uh, how Adobe would respond to, to Silverlight. And, uh, you know, even if Silverlight isn't as popular as Flash at the moment, it has the potential simply because it's, I mean, Microsoft have, what, 90-something percent of the, you know, the desktop market, which means mm-hmm. that Silverlight can easily go on. I, I bet you it's on it's installed by default in uh, Windows 7. Well, that would be uh, actually something interesting to check. I'm, I'm just making a complete prediction here off the off the cuff, but I <laughs> I'd imagine they would. They'd be silly not to. Well, unless of yeah. course, unless they want to avoid uh, what are they called anti antitrust or anti competitive uh, uh, lawsuits and whatnot, like they did with mm. IE. But uh, it's more likely that it would be built into the next generation of Internet Explorer, which just happens to be available as an option on Windows Seven. Oh, I, I, well, actually, are they? So yeah, what is the deal? Are they bundling 
still bundling IE or what? I don't know. Because I it thought... wouldn't surprise me. It's it. It just seems to be there all the time. Yeah, I I haven't installed a new OS for a long, long time, but. Uh... I did somehow remember something in the EU, or was it just in the EU that they have to... Just in the EU. Oh, maybe that's what it is then. So in the EU... And was it IE, or was it Windows Media Player? Oh, gosh. <laughs> We're going to have to look, uh, trawl through the records for that one. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> but there was something definitely there. So I guess um, So I guess this is just why Adobe responding to Microsoft, saying, hey, look, uh, you know, we want to retain our market. And they do still have the market. I mean, you look at YouTube... And in fact, Meta Cafe and all the rest of the, the copycats out there, they're all using yeah. Flash. Yeah, indeed. That's that's the really Why not? the well, that's the only channel into uh into into um you know, multi platform um streaming video at the moment, really, isn't it? It's the only choice. Yeah. I mean it's not the only choice technically, but what I'm getting at is that it's it's the only choice you would make at the moment. Indeed. If you want to almost guarantee that your user's going to be able to view your content, then Flash is Flash is a good choice. Wonder if we can uh, find out how, what the penetration of uh, of Silverlight is at the moment. Love to know. Hmm, that would be interesting. Last time I looked at Silverlight, it still was a totally inaccessible um, platform. So that's when I stopped looking at it. What what do you mean? Um, it has no um, accessibility features oh. for um, you know adaptive technology for people with um, disabilities. And flash, so flash does blind, if people who are blind who use screen reader technology, Silverlight is inaccessible to them, so they won't be able to access any Silverlight application. And how how does that compare with uh, Flash? Flash can be. Once again, with Flash, it has the capability of being accessible if the content developer themselves builds in and uses utilizes the accessible features of it. Right, so like HTML. Um, but it can be completely inaccessible as well. Right, so just like HTML, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So I can just, like, I can... just like your regular web page can be accessible or inaccessible depending on how it's built. However, Silverlight, when I first looked at it, um, even if you went into it with an accessible view in mind, you couldn't make something accessible out of it. Well, I tried it on my uh, Mac uh, some months ago when it was in the previous version, not the current version, the one before, uh, yep. and it just it wouldn't work at all. I clicked uh, install Silverlight. I clicked the button. Things happened, and then nothing. <laughs> so it was as if I hadn't... <laughs> it didn't work. It's like, you've, you, you know? But uh, I'll tell you what, though. I, I've done it since... And it worked first pop, and it was nice and easy to install. It was great. In fact, I'd almost go as far as, as saying it was easier than installing Flash. I remember some years ago, it was it was always a hassle to install it, and you had to choose which browsers you wanted to work with, and it goes away and finds those browsers on your hard drive and gives you an option list. And I think now it's a little bit better, but uh, oh, yeah, yeah. years ago. Flash's, Flash's um, install and upgrade process is now you've got a web page which needs Flash, it provides a link, you click the link, and bing. It self-installs, doesn't it, now? Yeah. yeah. goes and self-installs. If your security settings on your computer require you to click an extra button to say OK, then that will occur. But other than that, there's no choosing what browsers it attaches to or anything like that. It just goes away and does its thing. So what's the advantage of uh, Microsoft getting a foothold in the... Um 
I guess, you know, online video and online audio market with their Silverlight product. Why? Why bother? I, I think it's part of Microsoft's um, overall plan to dominate the world, really. <laughs> well, I guess that goes <laughs> that goes quite well, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I, I guess it's, yeah, maybe you're right. It's just they, they want to be everywhere. They want to be uh, in your computer. They want your, to be the name you think of when you think of anything. In fact, well, isn't that what they tried with uh, with the internet? They wanted MSN to be synonymous with the internet yes. y- years ago. Yeah, we're talking sort of nineties uh, here. Yep, yep. And people would, you know, join up onto MSN, and they had all these customized browsers and customized email clients, and they were kind of more on a. It was sort of a like a sub internet, but that was what people thought was the net. Yeah, like AOL. They yeah. tried to be tried to do an AOL. That's right, they did. So, is, is AOL still like that? Do you know, or is it has um, it evolved? I'm not sure. I'm not even sure if AOL still exists. Wasn't there? Um, wasn't you know, who owned it? Time Warner. Time Warner. It, yeah. Wasn't Time Warner um, selling them off? They've still kept they their making them money. They've still kept their uh, their chat client, which is apparently the most popular in the United States. Uh, the AOL Instant Messenger or AIM. Yeah. Uh, that's yep. still got, well, it's, at least it's still got that branding. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure about the, uh, yeah, what's happened to the rest of AOL. Hmm. Meanwhile, of course, Gmail is now uh, offering a service that allows you to access your content that would otherwise be in the cloud whilst you're offline. Now, this really, well, this really begs the question, is the the so-called cloud computing concept just not possible is it like well we don't want to be connected all the time or we or more so we can't always be connected all the time but i still want to be able to get to my stuff now if it's in the cloud that's not possible so is is that a is cloud computing a flawed concept is that is that an admission to that or cloud computing is fundamentally flawed it is it is a brilliant idea and um all good for Google to continue to pursue it um, because it will become more and more useful, but it will always be fundamentally flawed. And that fundamental flaw is you cannot guarantee for a 100% of the time that you will be connected to the internet. Or at least to your content. Indeed, indeed. So even if and you are with on cloud computing, you need to be connected to the network. You need to be connected mm. to the internet. Otherwise, your content, which is in the cloud, becomes inaccessible. So, for instance, when you're going on an airplane, when you can't be connected to the internet, um, if you, if a lightning bolt hits your local substation and blows your router, you're not going to be connected to the internet. If whatever, <laughs> if your local ISP, like the the one here, yeah, um, if your local ISP a, falls over, has somebody spills beer on the router, <laughs> then you've you know you're not connected to the internet anymore. And if you're in the middle of doing something, then it's gone. So having local backup, having your web-based applications, your cloud applications, um. Having those store local copies and synchronizing, that's your way to bring some reliability into it. But 
to just rely on stuff which is stored um, on the internet and only accessed through the internet, you're not going to get... Um, it's not a good hook for businesses and people who need to be able to access their information where they need to, whether or not they're connected to the internet or not. Yeah. So for our listeners yep. out there, what, what, what Google is doing is basically uh, storing or caching a local copy of your email that you get through, through their Gmail service uh, on your computer. Now, but isn't that, isn't that back to sort of like IMAP? Basically. Basically. They've taken two steps forward and now they've realized their two steps forward is a little too far forward um, and some of the capabilities of one step back were pretty good. So <laughs> they are making web applications um, take a step backwards and actually store locally cached data so that you it stores uh, local copies of your incoming email. It stores local copies of the email that you're sending until it is able to re-establish a good connection and then it goes and does its synchronizing, sends your email, brings in your new stuff. But at any point in time, whether you are connected, not connected, or have a dodgy connection, you still have your stuff. You can still do what you want to do. It's, it's a good step forward for Google to make their product more reliable and more attractive to users. But it is a sort of step sideways away from the, you know, the idea of true cloud computing where everything is out there. So this is really uh, a happy compromise really, isn't it? Yes, it's a happy compromise and I think it's going to make a lot of people happier. Because there's no such thing as, uh, well, there's... You're never always connected when you want to get to something. So, as you know, the, the, although the the other question that 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 goes with this is, if you were a business, would you trust cloud computing anyway? No, <laughs> because I'd think twice. Honestly, no. I would think twice. Indeed, you. If you're a business, you want to know that you've always got access to your stuff. Why do businesses pay huge amounts of money for support contracts for their hardware servers is so that they know that 99.9999 times <laughs> it's going to be available. I'd be more concerned with the, uh, with the IP and thinking, well, if they've got access to your, well, if they host all your email and perhaps even your files and your applications, doesn't that kind of make it a vulnerable point? Or even if... Indeed. Even even it's if not, I, no matter how good they make it, it will never be attractive to the big business, to the corporate. The corporate does. They want to control all of their stuff. They want to contain it, build their nice wall around it, and only let out what they need to let out. And I don't blame so them. Cloud computing based on other people's hardware will never be a big corporate's ideal. However, the concept of it is what I see corporates moving towards, the having their own cloud, basically, what the corporate contains their cloud, and all corporate employees can connect to the cloud and utilize it, and all of their stuff is there, utilizing these technologies. Um, but it's not part of, you know, like the greater Google cloud. 
So this, if you get my meaning. So this, this um, local... I guess it's the same sort of thing that Google um, could still farm out their um, cloud computing concept and their, their web apps is the way that organizations can purchase a Google Mini, a little Google box of their own that, they, that sits in your own corporate server room doing the Google indexing and Google searching, utilizing the Google technology, but not, you know, being out there, the main Google machines in a completely different country. It's all housed locally, controlled locally. And so the corporate themselves has complete control over it. So this, um, their concept is something that they, if they put, you know, continue to build upon it, is something that they could farm out. So instead of one big cloud, the true, you know, internet cloud computing, it would be a bunch of smaller clouds that are contained within organizations. And those organizations would be able to utilize the power of those clouds because it's the concept which has the, which provides the power there. So you're saying if, if I was Fairfax, for example, I'll just pick a random uh, example out of the hat. Uh, mm-hmm. If I was Fairfax and I've got a number of offices all around the world, one of my um, perhaps one of my main data centers could host uh, what we might call a local cloud, if you like, where we have some uh, servers, maybe some appliances, and all the applications and data and email comes directly off that. So you can control what's in there because you own that data center. But it doesn't have to be one in every building, right? You could just have the one for the whole organization worldwide, if you wish. Exactly, exactly. But it's just not part of what Google owns. That's what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, it's not part of Google's big cloud. But Google could very well be the company that this, that you know, Fairfax in this example purchased their cloud app, their cloud app servers from. Right, so they're just providing the technology, but not only... They're providing the technology. They're providing the backbone, and the organization can then, you know, lease that or own that off, license that from Google, and then utilize that technology themselves. You know what? I don't, I don't even know I'd trust uh, other companies like that with my own personal data, let alone if I was a business with IP and also the, the you know, un... un uh, the inability to guarantee to, to guarantee Indeed. uptime. Although you would, you'd, sometimes you'd never, go ahead. Oh, you'd never, as a big business, want to hand that over to somebody else that you didn't trust, um, and definitely not hand it over to somebody else where it's going to be stuck with you know in a big cloud with everybody else's things. Because there will always be the situation where something will go horribly wrong, and you know, let's say for instance Fairfax and oh, who's another one. Um, Coca-Cola. Time Warner. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, Coca-Cola, Time Warner, Fairfax. They're all in the one big Google cloud. And suddenly somebody from Fairfax does some, you know, a lightning strike happens or whatever. And an employee of Fairfax goes to look at their email, but instead they connect to Coca-Colas and suddenly they've got access to Coca-Cola information. Yeah, that, that wouldn't be good. Nobody's going to want their clouds mixing. And they then, want nice separate clouds. But the concept, the concept of cloud computing is is good. There is nothing wrong with it. Right, so that, that's it really... It would be the implementation of it and it wouldn't be able to be one giant cloud, not the internet cloud. Uh, corporations will never buy into that because they will never want to have their information that accessible. They want to be able to control it. So you don't think uh, Google's online applications will necessarily take over 
the, what you traditionally, um, you know, the, the Microsoft Office suite, as far as businesses um, are concerned? Yeah, as far as business users go, not until the business themselves would be able to host their own, you know, Google apps, right. Google Office apps. If the organization themselves could have their own Google Apps appliance on their own network to utilize it from, then they would use it. Yeah. But using what is available for everybody to use on the internet, no, not as much. Well, we all know how much I think we... that's why. I think um, that's probably what Google will go towards. Uh, it's what they've done with their search engine, which is why you can, if you're an organization with a huge web space or database or index, uh, you know, information index, electronic, you can purchase your own Google app, yeah, a Google server. Um, it's a little appliance, isn't it? Yeah, uh, Google Mini. It's a little black box with Google on it um, that you plug into your um, clusters back at your home base and your data center, and it will index and do all that sort of stuff locally. So, I bet you it looks cute, the, 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 the oh, appliance that is. <laughs> <laughs> they, they kind of remind me of Apple. They're kind of like the Apple of – they're kind of like the other half of Apple. <laughs> no, They're the Apple for <laughs> Windows machines. Sorry? They're the Apple for Windows machines. Yeah, yeah, they are. <laughs> and they reply, I, can, I bet you their appliances look really cute, you know, with a little logo and very sort of sexy curves and whatnot. And <laughs> hey, we all know how important it is to, to, uh, to keep our data safe and secure. Get this, a man right here in New Zealand, from, in fact from Wangarei, his name is Chris Ogle, Travels to the United States and buys a, uh, a little USB key in a thrift shop. Comes back to New Zealand, opens up what, you know, plugs his USB key into the computer, opens it up, and sees over 60 files, which are basically secret military files from the US, and they contain, contain information about foreign troops. Now, of course, the US Embassy in New Zealand was very interested in this, and they met up with the, with the, with the guy and arranged to have the USB key exchanged for a brand new one. What a crazy story. How did that ever happen? How how can you get... Why would you even be keeping such files on a USB key? Unencrypted, obviously. Completely unencrypted. <laughs> it goes back to, I think, um, what we talked about last time in the fact that no matter how secure or automated or encrypted you make something, if the person doing it doesn't think, <laughs> then bad stuff will happen. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, when you have people involved, there will always be situations where something completely out there happens. <laughs> yeah, I think you're you're spot on there. Uh, one of the guys I know quite well, a uh, security uh, um, IT security expert, does tell me that the biggest uh, uh, vulnerability, if you'd like, security-wise, are people. They're not mm -hmm. computers. They're not the technology. It's the people. Yeah, people remove, uh, putting stuff on USB keys and taking them away. People uh, leaving things on their desks carelessly. You know, it doesn't have to be IT related either. Actually, for that matter, it could be paper files. It's it's people, really. Yeah, that's the biggest. Uh, as long as there are people in the process, there will be problems. But then, on the flip side of that, as long as there is technology in the system, there will be problems. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's very true. <laughs> so, what would the, you? What would you have done in Chris's place? I mean, you've, you, would you have gone to the media and said, hey, look what I found? Or would you have quietly just sort of wiped the thing? Or would you have published them to the internet? What would you have done? Hmm. It's interesting. It depends on what was in there. If it was 
blatantly obvious like person personal details of soldiers and uh, um, military contractors, anything like that, that's personally identifiable, then I would probably delete it. It's not something I would put on the internet. It's you're invading somebody's privacy there. You're opening soldiers up to being, you know, uh, hate mail and personal threats and that sort of stuff. And you don't want to do that. It's just not nice. Um, and if it was really secret sort of information there, I don't know. I'd probably turn it in. Actually, no, I'd probably delete the whole thing because that way you, you wouldn't get noticed by anything. Well, <laughs> this is the thing these days. Because if you turn it in, then people, you know, you get all sorts of people into trouble. Um, well, not just that, but... Well, you do, but also these days, uh, sometimes if, you, if you're if you a, what, what do they call them, grey hat hackers, not that this guy was a hacker, he just bought this thing, but um, mm. in, you know, like grey hat hackers, if you then turn around to the company that, that you've, you've obtained information from and say, hey, look, here's what I've found, uh, they, they often don't take that too nicely. And, Indeed. You know, I guess but in this situation, I, I guess he is very well secure in the fact that he bought it from a thrift shop, so he can't be implied in any way uh, for the obtaining of this secret information. Um, and so it was probably handled just that way. Well, obviously, because we still know about him. He didn't just disappear. <laughs> I wonder if he had to... Which, well, you would think might have occurred if the US well, thought that's... that he might have had some involvement in its... Um, in the obtaining of those secret files, he might have just quietly disappeared. And we would never have known of this. Chris and we'd Ogle. never have known about it. Well, maybe, maybe there are some. Right. The paper. Well, maybe there are some. We just don't know. Maybe there are five more like him that have quietly disappeared. <laughs> we, we just don't you know. Never know. You never know. Now come the conspiracy <laughs> theories again. <laughs> conspiracy theories are fun. They make the world go round. They do. They do. And uh, yeah, they make, they make you think, they which give is me something to laugh at. Well, that's true. <laughs> So, Wikipedia considers limiting user edits. Meanwhile, Encyclopedia Britannica says, hey, we're going to open up our encyclopedia to many people to contribute. So, what's going on here? We've got these two different uh, models. One, uh, Wikipedia, which was very, very open. And you mm-hmm. could make some crazy edits that, that just uh, just for fun, you know, obviously deliberately post incorrect information uh, mm-hmm. and on the other hand you've got this other model the older model Encyclopedia Britannica which, who are online and have been online for a number of years but traditionally they've come from the the hard copy background and it, they don't indeed, you, they've got their, their, yeah and they've got their own contributors so now we're seeing what a sort of a, a more middle ground happening here I think so I think so Wikipedia is wanting to become um, as they always have they want to be a source of actual reliable information they don't want to stop people submitting and editing articles but they do want to bring in some peer review to it they want to stop the spammers from you know defacing articles with random advertisements they want to stop people from going in and maliciously editing um document um editing profiles or creating articles on people um, just because they feel mean-spirited about it at that point in time. Um, and they don't want um, they want to prevent you know, politicians or advertising companies 
um, or PR people from going in and either you know putting the shine on some people or um, you know bad mouthing people on on Wikipedia. They want to bring some some I don't know some class. So so that makes a lot of sense. That, that that makes a lot of sense. You 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 kind of want to make sure you've got some sort of control. So, but indeed, why then indeed. is Britannica uh, opening themselves up a little bit? Well, Britannica is um, kind of the, the the flip side to the the Wikipedia. They've already got a stable of contributors that they have asked to contribute articles and to review um, articles and edit articles. So they have a stable of information which they know is pretty good. Um, as accurate as they can get. Uh, but they've also obviously seen the power of what Wikipedia has been able to do with getting people's, their community's contributions um, to that more out there sort of expanded information. And so they're opening up um, a, that sort of side um, to themselves, bringing in community contributions while differentiating um, and maintaining the articles and information from their, you know, well-controlled stable. So if you went to Encyclopedia Britannica online, you'd be able to tell if you were reading a Britannica article from their peer group or a Britannica, Britannica article from the internet community. Um, so you'll still be able to see and do the whole judging. But I think it's a good idea. I think um, any of that sort of the ability for the community at large to contribute content and share um, the information is is it's all good. I I guess Britannica- but once again they do have to um, tread carefully, the same as Wikipedia has, and learn from um, the mistakes Wikipedia has made and the progress Wikipedia has made in. Um, trying to minimize the abuse of that sort of system where people can randomly edit or randomly create content. You're always going to end up with somebody who doesn't like somebody creating an article about them or politicians creating articles um, about themselves that are all glowing and shiny and have bare little resemblance to the truth. You'll always get that sort of thing if you don't have some sort of review. So hopefully, in Britannica's case, they will bring some of that community content that gets created and have their stable of reviewers and editors go through it and tidy it up and put it into some sort of semblance of a good article. Britannica have always had the reputation for accuracy, I guess, and that's what they've gone on so far. Mm. Uh, and yeah. I, but I guess with Wikipedia's penetration, I mean, you know, it, if you do a Google search these days, um, you know, three out of your first ten are Wikipedia entries. Uh, exactly. I guess they just, you know, it also seems to me that the younger generation uh, on the net just don't even know about Britannica. They've they've grown well, up with, with, with the net, and Wikipedia is it for them, which is which yeah. is a little bit dangerous because. You, um, particularly with, with their model, or at least the way it's been up until now, with Wikipedia, you have to be very careful what you read and what you believe. Uh, in, in, you know, with people, as you said earlier, making edits um, either maliciously or, or sometimes just simply by you know, misinformation. 
Yeah. Uh, and at least with Britannica, you're you're less likely to have that. I mean, Sean, I'm sure no no encyclopedia is perfect, but uh, mm. you have to be very careful. And I think the younger generation, I'm not sure how how well aware they are of these things. And I don't think some of them have even yeah. heard of Britannica at all. Oh, indeed. And um, those who've heard of Britannica probably think it's those big books that are in the library that take up a shelf. <laughs> that was true um, once. But, uh, I think, yeah, I think um, Britannica's in a good situation here. They've got a name for accuracy, um, but they've seen what Wikipedia has done. Wikipedia has articles on things that Britannica would never have thought to have an article on because of that community contribution. This is the internet community contribution. There are articles on roads. There are articles on bridges. There are articles on small towns. There are articles on sports players. There are articles on politicians, articles on celebrities. There are so many articles on such a variety of subjects in Wikipedia. It is becoming almost that encyclopedia of everything. Now, if Britannica can draw in some of that information, they can expand the encyclopedia of Britannica to incorporate more information about different things. They might want to filter out, of course, you know, um, the articles on random sports people. Um, but I think they've seen the potential from community content, and if they keep their review process and their editorial process and their fact-checking process and they look at some of the contributions they get from the community and they review them, check them and edit them, they could create and expand on their utilizing their name as, you know, they become more of an encyclopedia of everything, of accurate information. I use them both and look, I must say you're you're spot on about the uh, number of articles on Wikipedia. There are articles on all sorts. And depending on what I'm doing, um, if I'm wanting to find information that I need to rely on, I'll first go to Britannica. But sometimes I don't find an article on what I'm looking for or it's uh, mentioned in a at a very high level in a different article. So mm. then I'll turn to Wikipedia and there'll be an yep. article on just that very topic. Oh, indeed. You can almost think of, take a random thought out of your brain, put it in Wikipedia, and you'll, <laughs> no, nine times out of ten, probably find an article on it. <laughs> it's quite bizarre, and I, I love Wikipedia dearly well, um, because of that. It is the, I've got a random, I, I want to find out about a random make, of, make and model of car, for instance. like. No, a 1960s edition of an Aston Martin. What did they make then? Encyclopedia Britannica is unlikely to have that information, but I'm sure if I put in Aston Martin 1960s into Wikipedia, it'll probably come up with something. <laughs> I think it might be because right. somebody who is an Aston Martin fan has already created articles on the history of Aston Martin in Wikipedia. So. <laughs> Well, guess what? You're, you're spot on. I've just found uh, the Aston Martin article in uh, in Wikipedia. And yep, 1960s. Uh, yeah, there's, there, there's things on everything here. <laughs> Although it, you do wonder, who bothers writing this stuff? I mean, 
Look, I think it's great. Don't get me wrong, but look, have you ever contributed to an article seriously? Yes, I have to say I have. Oh, what was it on? Uh, H.P. Lovecraft, a um, 1920s, 1930s um, horror, gothic horror romance um, stories. And romance in the Victorian sense, not in the lovey-dovey sense, by the way. Just so you don't think that I'm reading horror Mills and Boons. Oh, no, I wouldn't. But, yes. I would never have thought that, Brett. <laughs> I have I have contributed to that article and okay. Wikisource. I have done um, a lot of editing of the um, of his public domain stories that are up there, formatting them so that they um, are easy to read and nice to read and accessible on Wikisource. Trying well, to I think you're a perfect candidate for uh, editing the uh, the Boys of Tech entry on Wikipedia. So I'll leave that to you. <laughs> I shall do that. <laughs> Good <one. laughs> Meanwhile, in Switzerland, uh, this is a great story. I love this. Uh, I always love it when I see these stories. You know which one I'm talking about. They, yes, Swiss indeed. police have uh, basically found a uh, marijuana plantation using what? Using Google Earth. Fantastic. Love it. <laughs> yes, nothing <laughs> you can't hide anything from the giant eyes in the sky. <laughs> nope, that's right. There's in fact there's there are some sites out there that have uh great pictures from Google Earth's amazing snaps. I'm not sure how how many of them are real and how many have been, you know, faked in, in Photoshop, but uh oh, indeed. but there are some really <laughs> I think you know there's some really interesting stuff there and some of it you can actually uh they tell you exactly where it is in Google Earth, so you know, those are not fake because you can actually use Google Earth to find those things. But this, yep. this is great. This is a great story. They, they basically, the police in Switzerland have found uh, almost two acres at seven and a half thousand square meters uh, of marijuana plant, uh, a marijuana plantation of that size hidden inside a field of corn. And all, all they were really doing is using Google Earth, as, as you do, to locate the address of the two farmers suspected of the involvement in the drug operation. And that's where they, they thought, oh, that might just look like a huge plantation. And indeed it was. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, Google. Thanks, Google. <laughs> now, what's happening at Microsoft, Dave? What they've done is they have launched a brand new uh, music store yes yet another music store there's probably a gazillion of these things now now but this one get this one they've it's a brand new one for mobile phones but it is so restrictive the DRM sorry is so restrictive at a time mind you bear in mind that where we're going away from DRM most almost everything on Apple iTunes is DRM free uh, there's there are many other stores now that don't have DRM either uh, and what they've done here is embedded this very, very strict DRM where tracks can only be played on the phone itself, cannot be transferred to another phone, and you can't even put it on your PC, even as a backup. Is that thing ever going to fly? I think whoever thought of this store has been in a closet for the last 10 years. They must have been. I can't think <laughs> why they they've were doing this. They've just woken up and they've gone, wow, look at all this online stuff. Hey, we should sell music online. Oh, but wait, we've got to respect all of these copyright things, so we better put in some DRM. And how about we just make it so that they can only play it on the phone? Yeah, that'll do. I Apple, can't. 
and we'll charge them twice the price for it. That's it. That was the other <laughs> thing. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's it's almost twice the price of everywhere else. I don't know what, what they're thinking. I don't know where this is going. Uh, maybe I, it's something we don't know. I don't think any of us are crazy enough to understand what they're thinking. You're going to have to find your local crazy man <laughs> and ask him if he understands what they were thinking when they were doing that. And even he might not know. <laughs> Indeed. Even he might not know. It's, yeah, impossible to get your head around the thinking of some things. It just is too insane well, to be real. you know, Microsoft... It is. It's... it's <laughs> Microsoft have done a lot of uh, good decisions in terms of their, their business, but I, I can't see this one working. Uh, I guess we'll just have to watch the space and see where it goes. But meanwhile, Apple actually have done something good for once in terms of their business. They've been uh, very much criticized in the past for coming up with these fantastic ideas, uh, bragging about how good they are, putting out these devices and new technology that has these new features and new technology embedded in there. And everyone yep, was happy and a week to buy later, them. there are a dozen clones. Absolutely. <laughs> the one thing they forget to do is, oh, we forgot to get the patent for that. Well, this time, here's, here's some good news. What they've uh, Apple have uh, basically been awarded a touchscreen patent. And uh, what it is, is, well, I won't go into detail here, but it's basically a patent that covers the way you operate a touchscreen on a portable device like an iPhone. And I, I guess the uh, the reason I'm bringing this story up is is that maybe this is their, uh, their weapon against the iPhone copycats out there. I think so. I think so. Uh, there's, you can buy these uh, very, very uh, good copies of iPhones that just aren't quite iPhones. They're sort of Ying Changzong models and whatnot. That <laughs> yeah, iPhones that come from the plant that makes iPhones but non-branded. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, actually, apparently a friend of mine was, was saying that uh, in China what they do uh, is, in fact, just as you've described, you can go to the factory where they make iPods and give them, say, something like 50 bucks or something, and they'll run you, run you off another iPod. Of course, it won't have the Apple logo, won't have anything, won't have a serial number, and I'm sure you, there's no support or anything for it, but oh, it does everything an iPod does. So. <laughs> exactly. It's all the technology is in there. Mm-hmm. It's got none of the branding, none of the tracking, but it's an iPod. Still. What I'd love to know, though, is what happens when you plug it into iTunes and you know how it reads your serial number, and I presume that goes off to Apple. I have no idea, but you'd imagine they'd be sort of keeping track of that. What would it do with a, with a sort of a, a no-brander, or do they make up a, a serial number or something? Mm. Maybe it well, depends. Maybe it does have a serial number in it still, but um, so it just thinks it's another iPod. You'd think they'd, Apple would sort of have an idea of the range of serial numbers that should exist out there. Well, well maybe they just don't care. Do you really think so? Because well, if it's built into the chip, imagine when you're running off thousands and thousands of these on the conveyor belt a day, and you know, ten of them are duds for whatever reason. They're still going to have a serial number in them. So who's going to be keeping track of all those serial numbers? Ah, yeah. At the factory. Who's going to be keeping track of those? Have you worked at one of these factories before? <laughs> well, I've seen pictures. <laughs> Fair enough. And I did watch a documentary on a, the construction of plasma TVs in a Taiwanese um, factory. And they just, yeah, when things broke, it just moved along. I, I, with the number of these things that are produced a day and the number that would probably be produced with some sort of fault... Do you really think somebody's tracking or keeping track of all yeah. of those numbers in those factories? Yeah, you might be right. 
I think that's probably Maybe what happens. Maybe they might be, but I don't know. Some things just you go, well, why would you spend your time trying to track that sort of thing? And you could be better spending your money elsewhere. Well, I guess uh, what Apple can do with these ones is uh, not so much for those you know, extra runs they do at the factories, but for the uh, for the big companies that release these things officially that are a little bit too close to the iPhone for comfort, I guess this patent gives Apple a, a weapon against that. And hopefully mm. they use it in the right... Well, f- I guess they'll work Yeah, hopefully it. they use it in the right way and they don't fall into the patents... Um, you know, the patent abuse uh, that we see from a lot of American companies in they will patent the most random things uh, and then go after you if you come close to it. I'm, yeah, I'm iffy on, on the way that patents are currently handled and, and um, copyrights and IP are currently being handled for the, by the, the, the big places in a lot of it can stifle the creativity and the competition, which is what you need to, you know, push along research and development to get these things to be created. Um, a lot of the development that Apple has done, do you think it would have still developed at its pace if they'd patented all of their stuff back in the past and they didn't have copycats out there? Well, that is the question, isn't it? Hmm. Mm. Well, do, do you remember how they actually got the name iPhone? No, I can't remember. Well, you know, the, the i everything, iTunes, iLife and everything. But the iPhone, the, the name iPhone was actually a registered uh, trademark of Cisco. And That's right, uh, yes. Yeah, and in the US, there's a law that says that uh, if you haven't used your trademark for, I think it's six years, you, you lose it. So that's basically a, a use it or lose it clause. Yep. And so what Apple did is, um, I think they began developing the iPhone about a, a couple of years, two years before they actually released it. And uh, so that was kind of into the fourth year, if you like, of Cisco's registration of the trademark iPhone. But Cisco never actually used it. They never released a device called an iPhone. Uh, they, they they may have had plans, I'm sure, but they never did. So Apple just pressed on and uh, in developing this this phone. And uh, when they were ready to release it, which was at about the time when the uh, six years for Cisco was up, Apple said, ha, it's ours now. And indeed, it went to court and Cisco went very happy and they tried to sue and all sorts. But in the end, uh, the the use it or lose it clause stood and Apple got yep. the trademark. <laughs> nice story. It's it's a good story. It's It's one of those rare stories where... Something good actually comes out of those, um, out of a patent or a trademark. Where, yes, if the original person who thought of that thing or put a trademark on that name doesn't actually use it for anything, they only get a certain amount of time <laughs> where they can have it to use. And if they don't, it becomes public domain again. That's, yeah. <laughs> and good for the courts sticking up with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah they've obviously. Uh... <laughs> Oh, that's a good thing. Could have gone, could have gone the other way. Apple now just have to uh, work out what they're doing with the uh, trademark Apple in, in terms of the music store with Apple Corpse, Beatles mm-hmm. music label. But uh, yep. that's going to be an ongoing thing. I can see that. I wonder if the uh, Beatles stuff has actually turned up on iTunes yet. I might just have a look. But in the meantime, uh, the UK's intellectual property minister, David Lammy, has said that the government will not force internet service providers to disconnect file sharers 
<laughs> now, let's only hope that some of the um, the politicians and bureaucrats in the New Zealand government <laughs> have read that story too, because that is a complete counter to section, what is it, 96A? 92A. 92A. <laughs> of the New Zealand Copyright Amendment. Um, <laughs> that's the UK's IP minister coming up and saying, no, that would be a silly thing for us to do. Is Far it? too complex. Uh, <laughs> Possible for us to legislate around, and we don't want to be going around arresting teenagers in their bedrooms. So, so, so why, why don't the lawmakers <laughs> here in New Zealand have that common sense? Uh, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I really think either somebody had their head in the sand or some money past hands. Yeah, makes you wonder, doesn't it, about, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's one of the very few circumstances where I've looked at what's happened in the New Zealand system and gone, that's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. How could anybody with an iota of common sense think that that would in any way ever be able to be workable. Who's sleeping with who? And the only way to do... The only people who would think that are the recording industry and the movie industry. They're the only ones who would think that that was something that should happen, irregardless of how it would actually be made to work. And for somebody to have actually said, yes, that sounds like a good idea, makes me think that definitely some sort of money or bribery of some variety has occurred in that situation maybe I'm wrong maybe it is just an idiot but um, I would have hoped that idiot got some money out of it well I think the UK have got it right I don't think uh, I think the UK have got it right there they've got an IP minister with an actual head on his shoulders that has a brain in it (laughs) a rare thing these days (laughs) a rare thing Every, every government should have one Every government should have well, more than one person with a head on their well, shoulders. Yeah, okay, more than one. May, hey, maybe even a <laughs> prime minister or a president with a head on their shoulders. That might be handy too. Indeed. <laughs> I get this. Hackers uh, have basically hacked into an electronic road sign in uh, Austin, Texas. And what they've done is they've changed this road sign from, I don't know what it said, it probably said slow down, crash up ahead or something like that, to zombies ahead, run for your lives. <laughs> <laughs> is that ethical I think hacking? That what was is that? College students having a damn good time, and <laughs> that sign probably slowed people down more than a slow down sign would have. <laughs> You're probably right, actually. Well, apparently, um, the apparently the stunt uh, is classified as a Class C misdemeanor, punishable by up to a five hundred dollar fine if they ever find who did it. But I think the humour there is uh, is just worth letting that one go. Oh, oh hell yeah! That would that one's definitely worth letting go just for the humour value of it. Although I guarantee <laughs> and you, and it's not like they did an, a, a huge amount of hacking. What was it? They broke a padlock that secured the cover of the interaction with the computer that's inside it. So, and there's not a lot of hacking that needs to go on when you're changing the a uh, those road sign markers. You'd think they'd have sort of a, a password system or something more secure because you're right, They all they did was break a padlock and they got in and you'd think they'd have some sort of, I don't know, code or something. Depends on how computerized it is. Might be a very, very dumb app, very dumb machine in there. Mm, I'd say it would be. I, I think that's fantastic. I think it's a, <laughs> that's a great stunt. But you know what? At the same time, I bet you there was at least one 911 call made 
from someone in Austin saying, I think there are zombies here. Can you help oh, us? Oh, indeed. Indeed. Yep. <laughs> Harkens back to, um, you know, Orson Welles and his War of the Worlds thing there. Oh, that was, yeah. <laughs> you got something official looking, saying something bad's happening. Somebody's going to believe it. Nationwide panic. <laughs> yep. <laughs> This one would have been roadside panic, but I think most people would have seen it as humour. I certainly would have. I would have had a good. I would have had a great chuckle if I saw that on the uh, Narunga Gorge message system. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Hey, we've got one billion people online now. We've just made it to the one billion. Uh, mark in the world now get this here are a few stats uh, of uh, where people are from on the internet if you just say we took a random sample of 100 internet users you'd expect 18 to be Chinese which is more than 16 uh, who be American so the Chinese of that was news I think a couple of weeks ago that the Chinese online population has just overtaken the American online population six mm-hmm. Japanese four would be German four British three French and Indian each uh, and that's basically half your uh, your internet uh, uh, population. The rest would, would come from all sorts of other countries, including like from us here in New Zealand. Now, in terms of continents, guess what? Asia Pacific is the biggest online community, 41%. Europe, well, of course, we have China. Well, it, well, it, well, that makes sense too, yeah. Yeah, that's true. No <laughs> great surprises in that, in that, uh, in that respect. Uh, followed by Europe, which is 28%, and North America, 18%. It's interesting spread. I, I kind of would have thought North America might have had more than Europe. Even though their population is less, you'd kind of think they're kind of more online. But uh, um, there you go. Yeah, it's very interesting. Although I think is it... Is, <laughs> One is it, sixth of the planet is online. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's incredible. That's an amazing feat, isn't it? It is, it is. It'll only, get, it'll only keep growing. Is there going to be any room left or are we going to run out of space or... Brilliant thing about the, 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 the internet. There's not really a space issue. So everything's you're not, right. you're not gonna see the equivalent of homeless people sleeping on park benches on the internet. Well, actually you might. You never know. I, I believe um San Francisco has homeless people who have internet. What they've got internet what? access? Well, they're called internet cafes, but yes, homeless people do oh, okay. go online too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and San Francisco has their own, has um, their the homeless people in San Francisco, I believe, have their own web community. Well, I tell tell you what, going back to our earlier story, I've just had a quick look on iTunes. The Beatles are on iTunes. Oh, they finally, to yeah, they they yeah. finally uh, obviously sorted out their differences and. What's, what's Apple iTunes and what's Apple Corps and, you know, whether people are sort of mixing the two up and whatnot. Yep. They've, they've settled all of that. Obviously, Well, I, I guess from the fact that they're on there, they finally said, yeah, okay, go and put our stuff on iTunes. Here it is. What if they sold much? Maybe it's too late. Can you tell? I don't know. <laughs> it's all there. So it doesn't look like they got much back catalog stuff, but uh, yeah, they've, there's, there's a whole heap of stuff on there. In the way of the Beatles. All right, here in New Zealand, the Department of Internal Affairs is setting up uh, a filter system that will basically stop people accessing child porn. Well, hey, I mean, that's, you'd think is a good thing, you know. Well, you know, we don't want that kind of material here. But really, what's the bigger picture? Does that mean 
the, the is that basically the thin end of the wedge? Are we going to see other things being blocked? Are we going to see governments or this government in particular saying, well, you know, now that we can block child porn, maybe we kind of want to block things that we don't quite agree with. And before you know it, you're in China. Mm, mm. It is It is a slippery slope, um, internet filtering. Um, they've got a good point. <laughs> they are blocking something that should be blocked. But when they have that ability, and yes, it's who's going to be um, regulating that system? Who's going to be saying, well, now that you've got this filter and it's used to block what it's supposed to be blocking, who's going to be stopping you from blocking other things so that we don't end up with a situation like China where, you know, if um, CNN suddenly puts up an article that badmouths um, New Zealand's um, rugby team, um, that's... New Zealand doesn't go and go, well, we better filter out CNN because they've, um, they badmouth that rugby team, so we don't want our people to see that. So here's the slippery slope. It's who gonna, who's going to be overseeing um, the filter. And at this early stage, it's actually hard to speak out against it because if you come out and say, oh, that's a bad thing, you'll, uh, you'll immediately get looked at and go, oh, so you want child porn? Well, no, but what, you know, here's where I'm coming from. I don't want the internet to be filtered at all. Sure, we yeah. can have laws that make child porn illegal, and if you are bringing in child porn via the internet, then you know you can be prosecuted. But Indeed. I don't like the idea of filtering the net uh, at, I, at all yeah, for any reason. I'm, I'm also not an advocate of having somebody else tell me what I can and cannot view. There should be better ways of preventing that which is in no way... Um, can you argue that it is, you know, something that should be available to somebody is a legitimate um, form of content? Um, there must be some other way of preventing it occurring in the first place, um, like stopping the seven thousand odd websites that the new filter system is supposed to um, to block, and instead getting those seven thousand websites to be taken off the web well I guess if they're in the Cayman Islands or somewhere um, no, remote true, it, true. Yeah, it can be very difficult but still um, what country in the world would think that that's legitimate what country in the world would not already have laws against that sort of objectionable material I know maybe that that's, maybe that island that the Pirate Bay are wanting to buy the, the Pirate Bay <laughs> Did you hear about that? The Pirate Bay wanted to buy this island. Uh, was well, not even an island. It's a disused. Oh oil, yeah, the um, the um, ex um, oil rig. Oil, no, not oil rig. It is a. It was a weather platform. Oh, or, was it? I thought it was an oil rig. Is it a weather platform? No, it's not an oil rig. It was used. It was created during the war, um, as some sort of station for something like weather monitoring or something. But yeah, in the North Sea, just off of just outside the um, inter international waters off of Britain. It's called Sealand or something like that's that. That's right, Sealand. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I don't, did, they, yeah. did they go through in the yeah. end or not? I don't know. No, no, no. Um, they didn't sell it to Pirate Bay. Oh. oh. Yeah, kinda, there is a family that owns it. <laughs> I, I kind of would have liked to see that happen. Um, I mean, you know, Pirate Bay, you could argue, aren't, aren't sort of particularly ethical in what they do, but... 
uh, I just kind of would have liked to see that just out of, you know, oh, indeed, a indeed. bit of fun. Yeah, know? but there's a difference between the unethically, you know, what some would consider unethical about Pirate Bay and then objectionable content such as what we're discussing. Oh, yeah, that's quite different. Yeah, no, you're right. That's what you're trying to block. Because Pirate Bay themselves would remove something that was pointed out to them. Yeah. If they were carrying anything of that material. Well, in fact, Pirate Bay's uh, defense is really that we're not actually carrying anything anyway. All we're doing is providing links, providing access to mm. by showing you where you can get uh, files and software from. But we're not actually hosting it ourselves. So, hey, what are we True. doing wrong? But uh, not sure if that sort of that really washes. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's you get into all sorts of fuzzy gray areas there. <laughs> Do you know that around <laughs> what people will support when they're supporting stuff to be free and open um, and unfiltered because nobody wants to be told what they can and cannot do. Um, we're adults. We've <laughs> we've grown up. We've moved out of home. I should be allowed to watch what I want to watch, um, listen to what I want to listen to, or read what I want to read. Um, but there are certain things on the other side to that which are you know, blatantly um, objectionable. And I don't know how in any situation you could argue that they, you know, would be legitimate. Well, i tell you what, I'm going to just play devil's advocate here for a second. In fact, this is Bruce Simpson's line. It'd be great to get Bruce Simpson on the show at one point. But uh, mm. the, the line is this. Well, actually, by simply viewing it, you're not directly harming anyone. It's like if if uh, if I sell drugs, I'm not di- directly harming someone. They choose to, to use the drugs. True, true. It is. But then, yeah, because, yeah, that's, that's generally the standpoint that I'm at is that the provision or the ability for it to be provided, such as through Pirate Bay or, or the drug dealer, um, <laughs> analogy um, is not causing the harm it is the creation of the thing which should be stopped yeah, because that is the part really, which caused yeah, harm Yeah, and I think so if you I stop that there's no need to filter anything else there's no need to filter the information through the internet if the creation of the um, objectionable material or the creation of the drugs or the creation of whatever is stopped at the beginning Right, so fix, uh, you know, fix the uh, the the cause, not the the symptoms. Yeah, yeah, fix the cause, not the symptoms. Because even if you even if you filter, even if you stop um, the the websites, even if you prevent people within a country from accessing stuff outside of the country, it doesn't stop it being made. And that's what you want to be stopping. And that that's where the harm is really. Well, at least yeah. in this, in this, the end user video. who's downloading it over the internet is, yeah, they're contributing to the the, you know, the dissemination the, of this material, yeah, and therefore the to creation, the dissemination of, of the material, and hence enhancing the, you know, the suppliers want to create it to supply for that whole supply and demand thing, um. But it's that cutting off the supply, that would be better. <laughs> cutting off the supply <laughs> hurts less people. <laughs> Maybe it's harder to do, I don't know. Maybe this is a 
what appears to be an easy, it is. easy solution. It is. Maybe that's uh, why they've with, gone for that. As with all things, as yeah. with um, yeah. you go back to your drug analogy, it's how do you stop the the supply? How do you stop the person who's growing the cocaine <laughs> when they're in a completely different country, hidden in a jungle? How do you stop that? Google well, Earth. You try middleman. What about well, Google Earth? <laughs> <laughs> Google Earth only goes so far. It only lets you go. Well, they're making it in my country, so I can put my law against them. But if it's in another country where it's not, for instance, if you take um, the coca plant that cocaine is created from, it's perfectly legitimate in um, some of those countries for the native people to grow because, well, for thousands of years they've been using it for medicinal properties. So what are you going to do? Impinge on their um, traditional rights that they've had for thousands of years because somebody discovered you could process it? Or are you going to instead try and crack down on the people who are processing it or crack down on the people who are bringing it in? Well, yeah, I mean, this is where the internet makes it so much harder. You know, what's illegal in one country isn't in another. You've got... Uh, a disconnect between, uh, say, copyright laws. Uh, one country, you might find that the expiry is seventy-five years after the death of the, the, uh, the creator, and in other countries, it's fifty. So you can view or read or or listen to something in one country, but not not another. It's messy. It's messy. It is messy. It is messy. But frankly, it wouldn't have it any other way. Good. Okay. Good. <laughs> There's no other way you could have it. <laughs> if you want something that is open and that provides for people, then yeah, there are going to be downsides to it. And if it wasn't this way, we wouldn't have anything to talk about. That's true. We wouldn't have the boys of tech. Indeed. There'd be nothing to argue about. There'd be nothing to talk about. There'd be nothing to bring to anybody's attention. When things step into the gray areas, which the internet is fraught with, Um yeah, <laughs> but at least what the, the, the initial Department of Internal Affairs thing, their filter system, blocking what is known as being objectionable websites is a good thing. It is just ensuring that that filter is controlled and maintained within its mandate, and that mandate doesn't start to spread to, as you were suggesting at the beginning, to things that the government of the time doesn't particularly want us looking at. Well, I would be putting that so in the two... So turn into a China. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, this gives me a headache thinking about this, and I would actually probably put it into the two hard basket. But uh, there we go. Do you know, uh, here in New Zealand... 92.3% of searches are done on, on the net, of course, not just down the back of the couch looking for coins to put into the vending machine. Uh, 92.3% of internet searches are powered by Google. Is that a surprise? Indeed. Or? I'm, I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> I am not surprised at all. Do you use um, Google, Brett? I use Google solely. I haven't used another search engine since I discovered Google. Now, uh, here's a question for you. Do you use Google because you're a sheep and everyone else does, or do you use it because it's actually good? I use it because it's actually good. When I first discovered it, what drew me to it was its simple interface and the fact that on the first page, I would almost 100% of the time find what I was looking for. Unlike Back before I discovered Google, when I was an AltaVista and Yahoo. Oh, yeah. I remember those um, days. When 
the first page would be full of junk. <laughs> yep. And you'd have to <laughs> and it crawl would be a few, a few pages in when you'd actually find stuff. Yeah, yeah but the page rank system is brilliant. It it does it works yeah. very well. Although, it does well. Oh, that yeah. and the uncluttered interface. Yeah. Who couldn't love that? When you went to the when I first switched to Google, the difference between Google and, and Alta Vista was night and day. You had Alta Vista, which is plastered with adverts and um, you know, their highlighted stuff of the day and all kinds of stuff and the actual search bar is this tiny little thing way at the top. Um which you get lost in the rest of the page, and then you have Google, which has a the space where you put in what you want to find. Yeah, it was. It, was, it always. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, it made you realise that you know when you look back at Alta Vista, you think, well, uh, look, you know, here we are. We're Alta Vista. We can offer you the latest stock prices, and hey, look at the latest news, and check out the weather. Don't forget the sports as well. And by the way, we also can do searches up the top here. I mean, it's like yep. it was kind of like the trying to be everything to everyone, and. You know, I mean, uh, Google... And then they lost their original purpose. Yeah, which was the internet search. And uh, yep. I guess Google got that right. You know, that's all people want to do. Here's your search button. Have you? Did you ever use the I'm feeling lucky on Google or was that something you... I used it a couple of times just to, you know, find out <laughs> but I, I, how I, good it was doing. Um, <laughs> but I do like my options. Yeah, I feel like it's sort of cutting me short a bit. It's like, well, hang on. It's it's almost like going to, I guess, uh, if you're shopping around for something. Well, here's an example. This weekend I was uh, shopping around for a just a 50cc scooter uh, so I can get to and from work. We're, we've, we're moving house and we're no longer on the bus route. And it's it's almost like, you know, when you're shopping around for these things, I'm new to scooters. I'm not a, a, a I don't use a scooter. I don't have one. I don't have a motorbike. I'm, I'm brand new in this market. So I want to really find out exactly uh, as well, sorry, finding out as much information as I can. So to me, the I'm feeling lucky button is a bit like just going to that one dealer, the one that's just closest to you, and saying, "I'm looking for a scooter. What should I get? What have you got?" And then, Indeed. and then making a a decision there. It's kind of like, well, I kind of want to see what else there is. So I, I, I mean, exactly. I, I, like, I do. If I do a Google search, I'm going to do a Google search, and then I will probably look at the first three or four pages that it brings up. Yep. I'll open them all in a new tab, and I'll see all see what the top four are, and go from that. I like my options. By the way, by the way, statistics show that uh, the only the first three pages are worth considering in a Google search. Well, at least that's what uh, uh, web surfers uh, say. Uh, the first three pages are very likely to be opened, and uh, anything after that is. Uh, uh, unlikely to be opened, dramatically reduced. Oh, so the, the first three you, pages are it. Well, it's what you'd think. If you haven't found what you were looking for in the first three pages of results, well, what are you going to do? You're going to redefine what you're searching for to see if you can narrow it down. Or do you go after Alta Vista? Uh, no, I just <laughs> redefine my search in Google. Yeah, I'd, I'd say I'm, I'm the same. <laughs> then you've got to remember that Google does live search. Um, it searches stuff that, it, it, of course, it's spider goes out and and caches stuff, so it's got a big search. But um, some of the other uh, search engines, I can't remember if AltaVista does, but I think it is, is a user-entered database. It has people who put in the entries. I think Yahoo was was based on that. In fact, Yahoo, remember, started out as 
not really a search, but an internet directory. And you could search yeah. that directory, yeah. but it was actually yes. human classified, if you like. They, the, the humans yeah. used to classify the the different pages into different topics. Mm-hmm. That made it uh, very attractive, but of course very uh, labor-intensive. Labor-intensive, and also it means that you would get what they wanted you to get first instead of what was, you know, automatedly generated out there. Now, although, you know... <laughs> Which is what it, I think some people think I'll they're do, getting from Google is the Google Analytics have done their, you know, consultation, they've got the page ranks, and that's what presents it to you. It's not a person going, well, if somebody searched for cars, then it's this page about Toyotas which should come up first. Well, I do wonder, actually, whether... The uh, Google page rank is true to itself, or whether it really—I don't well, know. They've done a pay- lot of work on it. Um, do you, think- you remember the controversy about the Google bombing you could used to be able to do? No, what was that? Oh, you, um, you could um, Google bombing was a, a way of adjusting the page ranking in favor of a page that you want. Oh yeah, when you'd wasn't there something where you searched for weapons of mass destruction or something, and it came out with saying uh, uh, it came out with a page like uh, no such thing or something. Yeah, yeah. Is that is and, that is that a example of Google bombing? Um, yeah, it was the ability of people to manipulate the the what search ranks. So if you search for a word, it would bring up a specific page as the first one because you had manipulated Google's um, ranking system to make that one the top page. Um, I can't remember how you did it. Uh, But you you can, I think, still submit pages to Google for indexing. Um, And it was probably via that. So is that that fixed now or can you... Yes, yes, they did stop that. <laughs> they did stop okay. the ability to Google bomb. Um, you probably still can manipulate the the rankings, but um, they've they they do a lot to try and avoid that. Well, this story came in a little bit late, just on Friday, but didn't have time to put it on our list. But we might as well talk about it anyway. Sam Morgan says that eBay would be Muppets to buy Trade Me. Now, I remember when Trade Me was first sold; uh, it was sold to Fairfax. I was actually surprised that it wasn't sold to eBay in the first place. What's sparked this? Has well, there's a rumor Sam indicated that Fairfax is wanting to offload Trade Me. Yeah, or? you got it. Yeah. There's a rumor apparently. Uh, I'm just reading this off the the press right now, so sort of ad-libbing as I go. But there's a rumor that Fairfax is looking to sell the auction site. Uh, they haven't said to whom, but they're guessing eBay. And in fact, to be honest, I would have thought eBay would have bought them to start with. Uh, and uh, I guess it's just speculation. So he's come out and said, uh, well, if it is eBay, that would be Muppets. Uh, I can't quite see why, uh, but... Uh, I can't see why it would be uh, it would be um, bad for eBay to buy a trade me. It would be their inroad into the New Zealand market. There's no way an eBay... If eBay did a New Zealand-specific thing, it would not compete against trade me. Trade me has market share. Well, it has, you know, has dominance here, but um, yeah. Well, here's here's what uh, here's what he says. Buy it. Well, here's what he says. With eBay's current state and what they have historically paid for acquisitions of this nature, spending a few hundred million 
to take the strategic territory of New Zealand would make eBay's management look like Muppets. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess New Zealand's market is very small in comparison. So would they bother? Do they even care? It's like, well, we don't really care. Or Indeed. Or, do they really care? Well, this, I mean, this is said, the thing. It's, small, it's a small market. And with the current economic climate, is it what they think is going to they think auction sites going to take off because people would much rather trade their stuff instead of going out and buying in the open market or are they thinking that it would be you know it would also feel the hit of the the, the current climate well i think and the uh less options going on well i think the economic situation has something to do with it their the shares are dropping on ebay so I don't know whether that means that... But then you'd think, well, maybe this is something that maybe could prop them up, but maybe it's just not enough, so it's not worth the investment. I don't know. Mm. I actually did think it was a little uh, overvalued at $700 million, to be honest. Hey, it's a good site, but uh, I think what they were buying yeah, is... Good I, I did... Uh, $700 million was it was a big shock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. $700 million for a New Zealand auction site? How, how do they think they're going to recoup their money off of New Zealand out of that? Jeez. <laughs> Does it pull in that much revenue? Well, uh, I'd, has it paid I'd, itself I'd love, off yet? I'd love to see the books. <laughs> I really would. I, here's my question: How are they going to sell trade me? They're going to sell it on eBay or <laughs> for sale? This? Oh no, you sell trade me on, on trade, trade me. Okay, so you'd say for sale this. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the way to do it. Hey, Brett, thank you very Bye much. By this side. Thank you very much, Brett. That's been a great uh, second edition of The Boys of Tech. We'll wrap this up. Thank you very much, uh, everyone else, for joining us, and we'll see you next week for episode three. Take care. <laughs>